Welcome to Both And with Bessie Graham, your weekly inspiration to help you use your time, talent, and treasure to make a bigger difference in the lives of others. I'm your host, Bessie Graham, award-winning entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience from the grassroots to the hallowed halls. Thanks for joining me. Let's jump in. For so many of us, our relationship with money is a layered one. In this week's episode, I invited a woman I have had the privilege of knowing for over two decades, who is nothing short of a money expert. I have worked with Mel on both my business and personal finances, and I knew her before she was the best-selling author and Instagram wonder woman that she is today. At 33, just after her ex made a throwaway comment in their divorce proceedings that she was not going to make it on her own, Mel made a rash decision. She donated the entirety of her personal and business bank accounts, as well as her divorce settlement and started from scratch. Listen in to hear Mel share her lessons learned from building three seven-figure businesses, selling one, and getting to a place where she is living a life by design. Please join me for this conversation with Melissa Brown. Mel, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat. It's taken us a little longer than I anticipated, but I'm very glad that we can have this conversation because I think There's so many beautiful synergies and overlaps when I see what you're talking about on social media and the conversations that I'm having with business owners and leaders Mm. that I thought, who better to bring on the podcast and have a bit of a chat with today? No, I love that. So I'm wondering if we can first, not everyone knows you in the way that I do. Mm. So I'm keen for you to tell us a little bit about your story and focus specifically around you as a business owner. So I know that a lot of the narrative and the fun kind of language that you use out there is kind of the ex-accountant, ex-financial advisor, accidental Uh entrepreneur, all of those kind of terms. But as someone who has watched you over many years, I feel like there's been this real evolution, if you like, of almost you going on that journey of discovering yourself in the process and drawing out components that have allowed you through the business to actually find a fuller expression of you as a person. And I've found that really interesting watching that. So I'm keen for you to tell us a little bit about what has that been like for you over the different businesses that you've built? Oh gosh, absolutely. So I'm very much an accidental entrepreneur. If you'd asked me at 18 what I was going to do, it would be a lawyer that I was very set on that. And mainly because I was a smart girl. So I was really steered into that. I liked arguing. I liked debating. So it kind of felt like a bit of a natural fit. It wasn't until I studied it that I really realized this is not for me. Because I'm a people pleaser, it was three years of study before I actually (laughs) extracted myself from that. (laughs) And my dad said to me at the time, well, there's law and accounting. Maybe you should do that. So I was so lost that that's the only reason I studied accounting. And then the reason I call myself an accidental entrepreneur is because I was wanting to do some more studies. 
So I'm always the one that takes it too far. My parents, I grew up in a very fundamental Christian household and I was struggling with what do I believe? So I thought, well, how do you figure that out? You go to theological college. So <laughs> of course, the of only course option. You do. <laughs> I can't associate with that at all, Mel, no, or going exactly. to extremes. No. <laughs> you don't dive into, into no, the deep end quickly. <laughs> Certainly not obsessive in any way. Definitely not. I love that you can't relate to that. So I decided to take on a few clients. It was back in the day where you would quite literally letterbox the neighborhood. And after a few years, I realized that I'd accidentally started a business. And at age 33, when I divorced my first husband, I looked at it and I reassessed to say, well, what do I want to do? And I realized I did not want to be an accountant. Like I did not enjoy it. I just happened to be good at it. But what I loved was writing. And I really, really loved business. And I figured that accounting was simply the conduit. So through that, I was able to see people's numbers, see how they grew great businesses. And what I wanted to do was help women particularly build their business. So I was very much there. A girlfriend joked at the time, she said, did your wardrobe used to open and there's a sea of gray and then black, you move the gray across and there's some more black. So I dressed like an accountant because I wanted to be taken seriously. At the time, I was six foot tall and blonde and in my late 20s. So I'd put my hair in a bun and just, you know, fit the mold. Pretend like I was an accountant when I (laughs) fit the mold. I wanted to be taken seriously. But what I worked out through that next decade is the more I wrote and found my voice, which was comparing building a business to building a wardrobe, the more I bravely started to dress with the expression that I love, which is colorful and which is definitely not how an accountant would dress. People would be attracted to that because it was different. And I guess if I've learned anything in business is the more you allow your authentic self to shine through in business, the more people will be attracted to that. Not everyone. Yeah, but the right people. Absolutely. Some people would look and think you're a pit of fluff or there's pink on your logo. You can't be serious. Yeah. But the right people, exactly. And I guess through all of that, the business really grew and I started to take advantage of opportunities, whether that was preschools that I started with a good friend or the financial advice firm. I continued to write books. I wrote for newspapers, but I just felt in that, that I was stunting my growth. So I've really taken the time probably over the last decade to really figure out what's my story. And how am I getting in the way of my business success? It was a compressed nerve in my neck probably about five years ago where I'd really decided this is where I want to be. Age 50, I want to sell. I think at that point, I'll just get all out. And two good friends within the space of a couple of months just said to me, why are you pushing so hard? And why 50? Like you just don't seem happy. And I think it was the combination of all of that where I just looked at it and went, you know what, I'm not. So within three months, I sold my accounting business and I started to step into what I actually want to do. Shut down my financial service license. I didn't even sell the business and started online courses. And part of the reason I worked out that I wanted to go to a 50 and that I was scared to sell was because I didn't know who I was without that business. I didn't want to get lost in the preschool because that's not my thing. And I thought, well, what if I'm only successful once? What if I can't replicate that? And my husband doesn't want to stop working. I don't want to sit at home twiddling my thumbs. That's not who I am anyway. 
So I've really been taking the time over the last few years to ask the question, just because I'm good at something doesn't mean I should do it, which meant that I shut down a business program that even though it was going well, because I'm like, no, it's personal finance that I'm really passionate about. Hard to sell, but it's what I'm really passionate about. And I'm actually at the point today where rather than this could just be a really beautiful one to $2 million business where it doesn't take, like it's a bit of effort, but not a lot of effort. Actually, over the next five or 10 years, I really want to push it to see what I can do with it with the aim of taking half of the profits and walking out of the door to charity, which is kind of the audit Excel model. So I think part of that journey was caring less what people think. Part of it was having the courage to actually do what was right for me and show myself in business and to not be scared to niche, to not be scared to shut things down if they're not serving you, to not be scared to say no, and to really give things a crack. Maybe they won't work, but you know, sometimes they work beyond what you even imagined. Yeah. And it's really interesting because even the combination, as you said, there's this really special kind of dance between the finding of your voice, the finding of your style, the finding of your power, like these really important, big concepts that take time. Like that is an evolution. Like you can't rush that stuff. And there were things that you weren't ready for and you didn't know about yourself yet. Yeah. As you tried to navigate, well, what does power look like in this industry? And then realizing, oh, actually, your own version of power is much bigger than that if you step outside trying to be something that you're not, which is a really interesting lesson that lots of us have to learn over the course of our careers. And And it's really interesting the number of people that have tried to kind of speak against that to say, oh, you know, are you sure you just want to do that? Or, but wouldn't you also want to do this? Or, but you know, you could do that. Or even with a couple of things that said, oh, no, 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 you don't want to be known for that. You don't want to be the poster girl for that. And it's having that true north in yourself to go, actually, no, this is right. Yeah. Because people always have their opinion. Oh, gosh, yeah, exactly. But I think one of the bits that's interesting with you, so even in that story where you said you then came to this realization and said, I'm not going to wait till I'm 50, I'm not happy, so I'm going to sell the business. Well, the only reason you could sell it profitably and well and so quickly was because you actually had been doing all of the work. Yeah. So I think there's this important piece to pull out though around there might be components of external judgments or people saying if you were smart or running the business well, you wouldn't have pink in your logo, et cetera, like these very surface level things. But you were able to actually build something that was able to sell. That takes people a long time to do that. And even once they make the decision to get it ready for sale, just simply getting ready to sell and do the due diligence is a massive, epic kind of process. My thing is always, and I used to talk to clients about this, I want my business perpetually to be ready for sale. So for me, it was always the most profitable that it could be. It had great systems. It had great processes. It could operate without me. So it was always ready for sale. My preschool is the same. The business that I'm running now, even though it's an online business, I've figured I absolutely believe it is able to be sold. And I think part of that is with the accounting firm, I knew the three people that I would ring if ever I wanted to sell because I'd done my research. I've done the same with my online business. I know who I would contact. I know the companies that I think would be interested. Yeah. So I think for anyone, if you're running a business, you've got to have that 
end goal to A, make sure you've got a beautiful business that someone would want to purchase, but to be thinking about who would want it. Yes. Who could I make that phone call to? Yeah, which is that strategic thinking forward and even some of those, it makes me think of the great book, Built to Sell. Yes. That piece of like, if you actually build something and it is able to sell, it's fine then if you choose to keep it. Yes. Because you've got something that isn't the drain on you and you've actually built something that has more of that energy that then it's not a bad thing if you end up keeping it till you're 50, for example, that's not a disaster. It's exactly right. But you have options. So I think that's a really interesting one. I'm wondering when you sort of tell that story of the journey over the different businesses and the lessons learned in that process, are there lessons that you think you had to learn? So even though they were difficult, it was just a matter of maturity or experience. And then somewhere you think, actually, I wish someone had have just told me or taught me something earlier because I didn't have to learn that the hard way. Do you have? Oh God, yes. And I absolutely see two different boxes. So one is, I think there's this expectation that if you're an accountant, you're just going to be good at the numbers with your own business. The number of times that I took, and it probably happened about three times where I'd take my eye off the ball and they were always the year or the periods where there were staff issues or there was profitability issues because I wasn't keeping that close eye on the numbers. And same with that whole, I wish I'd had the wherewithal to use good HR very early because staff for me, just (laughs) managing staff is just so hard. So those are two skills. Like I knew the numbers, but what I didn't realize was that if I took my eye off the ball, how quickly the business could shift and managing staff. I wished someone had come along and said, Hey, this is what you're going to have to do. You're not going to enjoy it. It's going to be a bit of a grind, but if you don't do it, it's going to be problematic. So you just need to do it. The maturity and the other thing is I definitely had some personal issues that were acting like blinders to me. And it did take a moment in time to actually be willing to face them and to realize they were stunting my business growth because they were stunting my own growth. And when you're the CEO of the business or you're the founder of the business, that makes a huge impact. So that was something where I actually had to go in the end and work with a coach and a therapist to work through. And it took a while, but it meant that I could then move forward with my business just with a different energy and with a different viewpoint even of myself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so common. I always say to people that I'm working with, you can't lead others till you lead yourself. Yeah. And you're right, all of these blind spots and things, even when you think you're someone who's incredibly self-aware, even when you, like both of us introverts, even when you're that person who's like reflective and actually overthinks a lot of stuff, Uh there's always those pieces that, as you said, are actually what's getting in the way or blocking you from that next leap or growth in the business. So yeah, that's really important. And I wished I dealt with some of those earlier, but I think like anything, sometimes it's just the right time and to be able to do that. Obviously, that comment you just made is a very important one in that sometimes even if someone had have told us or we were able to tell ourselves, we wouldn't have even heard Mm -hmm. it or been able to put it into practice because we weren't ready. But if you kind of had a time machine and you could go back to Mel setting up that accounting firm, are there things given what you know now, especially 
because I have seen in your current business the way that you have done some of those pieces you just spoke about of paying people who are already experts to come and just do something rather than trying to learn it yourself. But then in other areas going, no, I can do this better than an expert. So I'm going to learn it. Yeah. Like, What would you advise yourself with that time machine? With no guarantee that young Mel would listen. No, exactly. (laughs) So I did some things that I'm really proud of in that I paid with the very little profit that I had, I put it into going and flying up to Queensland with my two IC and doing a coaching program every single quarter. And it was accountants focused. And because it was that competitive environment, we're in a forum with blokes. I just wanted to beat the boys. So we doubled very quickly, just simply as a result of that. So I'm inordinately proud that I did that. But what I didn't do is I didn't back myself enough. What I'm very good at is creating something and then getting bored with it and moving on to the next thing. So, right. <laughs> Again, you're saying all these oh, things no. I can't associate with. Like, I thought we were similar, I'm, but maybe not. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Rather than investing in sales and marketing and really pushing hard for that, yeah, I did an online course 10 years ago with the book More Money for Shoes. And I kind of created it, put it there, and then went, okay, what's next? Rather than Mm. let's actually, and I look at it for the launch of my first book. I have it. Oh my gosh. I love that you have all that printed. (laughs) So good. Yeah. Look, I've got all my notes, Mel, from your first book right here. See, I remember when you brought that when we met. (laughs) I'd set it up as an art gallery for the launch. We had QR codes, there was little videos and then the course. It was so ahead of its time. Oh gosh. Yeah. But I didn't lean into it enough. So I was smart enough to pay some girls that were really smart with guerrilla marketing. We got that book into some incredible hands and it got me such opportunities. Yeah. But I kind of did that and then stopped and thought that was enough. Isn't that interesting? Do you think that's because, again, going back to this thing of doing something that's exciting and then you lose interest oh. and move on, right? So because a lot of us as entrepreneurs have that tendency because mm-hmm. bright, shiny object, bright, shiny object. And it's the component of that's the creation. The conceptualizing is what's fun. And then you're like, been there, done that, got the pretty book. Uh-huh. What's next? It's like, why would I stay having that conversation? That's really interesting aspect, but you're so right because you were way ahead of your time with that. Oh, absolutely. And what I should have done in hindsight is I should have hired a GM in the business who could just keep it steady, make sure that the staff were doing well while I'm doing all these projects and making sure that the basics are done beautifully so that I could then be that creative force above that. That would have cost me but that's what I absolutely should have done. Yes, so interesting. And it would have been a much bigger business if I'd done it. Yeah. But who knows? I mean, maybe there'll be the next launch of the books. You'll do a kind of 20-year reunion version. (laughs) You can just take all of that, update it, and make the most of it 20 years later. (laughs) Well, it's 10 years old. It's incredible. Now, which is insane. Yeah. So not. But, you know, I'm assuming you're going to be a bit busy for the next few years at least. So I was giving you some room there, Mel. Going to be a little busy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> give me some room. I'll give you to 20 years. You can Thank you. revamp it. <laughs> Thank God. I want one of those beautiful paintings at the 20 year one. Done. <laughs> That's really interesting. So there's some pieces there that, as you said, it's this mix, isn't it? Of being yeah. both gracious to ourselves of we did some things really well, but then going, hmm, what are those bits that you could do differently? Could have done that better. 
But what I want to always do is in the next thing, I want to bring those learnings and make sure I don't repeat mistakes. So in my current business, we've been doing everything, but we've been making sure we're so boring in that same product. Consistency. Yes. Yeah. We'll play with the product so that it's better and better and better, but it's the same product. We'll add some products to it. People want to buy stuff during the year, not just launch time, but the basic product itself, even though if we're bored with it, we're going to keep going with it. Yeah. But it's what we're starting to do now is look at it and go, okay, but if we want to grow it, we need people. And because I know what I'm like with staff, we're hiring contractors and we're hiring lots of support, but they're not necessarily employees. Yeah. Which again, as you said, that's part of that learning to know yourself and know where you're best Uh and the things that will end up weighing you down and you'll feel trapped by the business, which is the opposite of what you've tried to create. Yep. Exactly right. For a moment, if we just dig into your primary sort of focus around the course itself, you mentioned briefly before the aspect of you had a business focus course and then you chose to shut that down and really focus in on the individual and their financial kind of education. Was that a tricky thing or were you just so in flow with really wanting to only push after things that you were energized by that it actually was quite easy? I had a very good friend who once said, it's just going to sound really terrible, but you can't ride two horses with one ass. (laughs) It's a true story. Yes. It's a true story. I looked at both of those courses and knew they both had the ability to be behemoths. And I thought this is going to be problematic if they both do well. And I truly believe they both could. I believe the business course could have done incredibly well. And I absolutely believe, well, the personal finance course has done incredibly well. Yeah. But the business course, even though I loved it, it required more from me with one-on-ones, et cetera. And I realized during that process, I don't want to be doing that. I don't want to do one-on-ones. And I just needed to give that introverted self of mine a bit of a break. So that was part of the reason I looked across to personal finance going, I think that's going to be a harder sell ultimately. However, the transformation is going to be just as great. Mm. Business women need that as well. So you're still talking to both markets. There's a module in there that's all about business. So it's not like I'm leaving that behind altogether. I still get to play with parts that I love. You just can't book a one-on-one with me. So it's perfect. (laughs) And Lawsy loves it. Yeah. But you've still done those components of even in the way you interact by always staying and doing Q&As. So while it's not a one-on-one. Yes. You still get me. You've got that beautiful rapport and trust being built with a customer, which is important. Absolutely. And it's done in a way where my energy can be maximized, but people still feel like they're getting me. And that's really important. I don't want people to buy something and then feel like there's no engagement, there's no community. It's just buy it and see you later. Yes. They got tricked and saw you on social media and then never heard from you again kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. I want them to go, oh, wow, she's really here and we really get to ask her questions and she shows up. You just can't book a one-on-one with me. Yeah. Which I think that's totally okay. Yeah. And it's also allowed you to get to the size of the numbers of people in your course. You just couldn't do that if you were doing one-on-ones. Can't have 1,800 people through if they're wanting one-on-ones. No, exactly. So if we jump and shift gears then for a moment to more you as that thought leader, the financial educator, which is the kind of space that you've really stepped into 
and the strategy type place from a business perspective. Mm. How do you see people's relationships with money getting in the way of them actually living that life by design piece that we've been talking about of something that reflects them finding that sense of, I always talk to people about freedom and fulfillment, like what are those pieces from a money side? What do you see that relationship being for a lot of the people that you're coming into contact with? Well, I find it really fascinating and I love this conversation because we shouldn't have a relationship with money. You know, it's simply legal tender in the same way we shouldn't be able to have a relationship with a car, should just simply be a vehicle to get you from where you are now to where you want to be. I mean, some people have relationships with their car, (laughs) but you know, that's a minority rather than the majority. But if we look at food, if we look at money, food is meant to nourish us, yet so many of us have a twisted relationship with food. We consume food because it's easy and it's not good for us necessarily. It might be processed, it might be toxins, but we kind of are addicted to some unhealthy natures of food. And I see the same with money. I see with too many of us, we are in a relationship with money. And if we looked across to food, it can be toxic. We can be addicted to certain parts of it. And it's really important to understand that I believe we need to identify what that relationship is. We need to identify what those stories are. And then most importantly, we need to break up with money and move it back from whatever relationship we're having with it, even if we think it's a healthy relationship, to it simply being a tool again to get you from where you are now to where you want to be. But the three big problems in that is one, people haven't identified what that relationship looks like. B, they don't know where they are now because again, they haven't faced that and they haven't thought finally about where they want to go. They just kind of are operating by default. And if I layer another one on, they actually don't know how to drive the car. So they don't know how to get from A to B. Yeah. So that whole process. And there can be a lot of fear around that. So much fear, so much shame, so much anxiety, like there's so much emotion tied into it. So it's undoing a lot of that. Yeah. And that's such an important shift to name that as from a relationship to seeing it as a tool. What would you say are the easiest ways that someone can actually make that transition and start to engage with money as a tool? So you want to start to question what that relationship is. A really easy exercise to start to unpack it. If we look at a couple, one might be to ask the question, if money was sitting here with us having this conversation today, or if someone's listening, if money's sitting next to you, how would you describe that relationship? Is it loving? Is it lustful? Is it like a drunk uncle that you're scared is going to escape out of the cupboard and embarrass you at parties? Is it like an ex-lover that you can't stop thinking about? How would you describe that relationship? And then I'd take it a step further and say, when it speaks, whose voice is it? Is it your mother's voice going, you can't do that? Is it your father's voice berating you? Is it a grandfather's voice or a teacher's voice? Because I think that's really important as well. And it might be a kind voice, Mm. but all too often I find that it's not. So that might be one exercise. And even if it's kind, they may not be words or advice that you choose to take on board because kind doesn't necessarily mean that it aligns with you. And I think that's Uh one of the pieces that when I think of the components that you and I have often spoken about that are under this umbrella of the both and, like you don't have to choose either or. 
a voice could be kind and you could say, no, I don't feel that there's tension around money or whatever, but it's like without the consciousness and some of those pieces that you've laid out, yeah, we could be just quite laid back about things where maybe we actually needed a bit more of a kick in the pants on that one or some yeah. structure or to be conscious and, as you said, decide where am I even wanting to go when it comes to money as that tool to get there. I have a very kind voice that says to me every day, oh, Mel, you don't need to go work out, maybe later today. And then later that day it goes, oh, can't Mel, this has been a hard day. Let's just sit on the couch and watch Housewives. It's a kind voice. There's some chocolate frogs over yes, there calling. chocolate frogs. It's a very kind voice. It doesn't mean that it's a voice that's helpful to me. May not be wise, yeah. And that's where it's really important to differentiate. There's lots of different things that we actually look at inside the course. But the other thing is to question your money story because a lot of us grew up with money stories, whether that's from your parents or peers or society or your culture. It might be around the role that we're supposed to play in a household. It might be around who is supposed to take charge. It might be around the fact that in order to adult, you want to buy your own home. It might be around credit and how all debt is bad or that women don't make great investors because they're too scatty or all women spend so many different voices and articles and so much more. And it's really important to hear them and to ask the question, are those money stories serving me or are they sabotaging me? Are they helping me or hindering me? And then if they're helping me, how can I amplify that? If it's hindering me, how can I lower the tone, lower the voice? One money story is Jackie Lewis, who is the Doyle's food group daughter. Jackie said when I was interviewing her, she said, look, her dad was a chef and her money story was that you only got ahead if you work hard, but not just work hard. You got to work till your eyes bleed. She didn't invest. She just worked really, really, really hard. And she ended up burning out because it's unsustainable. And so you might have a money story. You go, you know, how is having a money story that hard work will get you there is bad. Yet Jackie's an example of when it just doesn't align. My husband had a very similar one where He's all about hard work, but he then left all the investing. And when I met him, had a lot of cash in the bank, but no assets necessarily other than the business he was in partnership with. Because it's that thing around, is that serving you or sabotaging you? And yes, it might be serving you in one aspect, but is it serving you across all aspects of your finances? Yeah, so important. If we take that kind of aspect around financials and money, Often people choose to kind of block their ears, close their eyes and avoid these things. Yeah. If we think about a business owner or a business leader in particular, are there certain aspects around their financials or the stories about money that you would love for business owners to really focus on or master that you think are a bit of a leverage piece? My gosh, so much. I think there needs to be two different sides. One is got to be your language and how you speak about it. So if we talk about women business owners, whether it's C-suite or whether it's a business owner, language, I find that it's two very different ways of speaking when you speak to men and women. So I've never heard a man describe their business as just as a home-based business or as their baby. Three words I've never heard a bloke describe their business as. Yet I hear women every single day describe their business as that. And yes, it may be a home-based business, but why can't it be the most profitable one 
that it can be. And to diminish using words like just or baby, you may need to give your business a good shake. You may need to sell it. You may need to make decisions that could put it at risk. You're not going to do that if you're calling your business your baby. So I think language is really important. But the other side is to really understand the numbers behind the business. It's one thing to be great at what you do. It's another thing to run a great business. And there's this misnomer that women aren't good at the numbers or I'm a creative, therefore I'm not good at the numbers. That's absolutely not the case. I've seen women across all different types of businesses are extraordinary at it. They don't need to be accountants. They don't need to know every single number in their business. They just usually need to know the five or so numbers that absolutely relate to them and that of a good bookkeeper, et cetera, that is feeding them the rest of the info. But if you are not concentrating on the numbers, if you are not geeking out on business and deciding to not just be good at what you do, but actually be great at business, then you may end up having issues with cash flow. You might not be as profitable as you could be, et cetera. And for me, why would you put all that stress and time into it if it's not going to be as successful and profitable as it can be? Yeah. No, I think that makes perfect sense. I could talk to you all day, Mel, but we'll kind of start to bring it home a bit. So when we think about these aspects of each of us, particularly from the position of someone who's running a business, we're working really hard. Like you said, we've got all these stories and pieces that are playing out for us. Mm. But ultimately, there is this desire to experience the aspects of everyone calls it different things. But, you know, for me, I talk about freedom and fulfillment. Yes. And wanting to see that play out for you. Mm. I'd love to know what do you love most about the life that you've been able to design and that you're living now because of the journey you've been on and the decisions you've made in how you're running your business today? Oh my gosh, so many things. So I think part of it is If we look at my personal life, I absolutely thought at age 16 to 18 that I would get married, first child at 28, second child at 30 to 33. Like it's simply what I saw. And when I divorced, divorced my first husband, can't even say it, I reassessed everything and realized I didn't want kids. I just am not built that way. And it has meant I have an incredibly fractured relationship with my parents now because they don't know how to relate to me without children. So what it's given me is A, the courage to make decisions, not just in my business, but personally to actually ask the question, what do I want? And then beyond that, well, what does it look like? Like, What could my life look like? And for me, it's meant spending part of my week in the city, part of my week in the mountains. We're now getting to the point now that the world's open again, where we want to start spending more and more time overseas. But That's only possible because of the financial choices that I've made. And for me, having financial choice means that A, I'm firmly unemployable. (laughs) If someone was to offer me a job tomorrow with an extraordinary salary, I just couldn't take it. The idea of someone telling me what to do, when to turn up Mm -hmm. and when to work would just be horrible. And when you could have holidays? When I could have holidays. To go overseas? Couldn't deal with it. So for me, It's about having choice, choice both in my personal life around what my life looks like, but also choice in my working life around what that looks like. And I have the choice today to work or not. 
And because my husband wants to keep working, it meant that I needed to sit down and go, okay, do I just want to phone it in for a few days a week and have a great life and still have impact, still feel like I'm making a difference? Or do I actually want to kind of kick it up a few notches and decide what could this really be? What impact could I really make? And how much could I really give back both in dollars and in knowledge? But what I love most is that was a choice. Yeah. I don't ever feel that compunction that I have to. And I think that I believe that means that I will achieve it far quicker than perhaps I would have when I was running my accounting firm because that was a necessity versus this isn't. And I think that's part of the privilege of being in the position that I am. But that's because I'm a Western suburb chick that didn't come from money. It came from making those decisions along the way to make sure that I was financially independent. And I think, Mel, it's important to add into that the part of your story around, because someone might be listening and then think, well, that's lovely, but you've had three businesses, decades to build that up. Yes. It's important to add in that there was a very significant shift that occurred for you when you did get divorced. Yeah. That meant you not only went back to zero, but you were in the minuses because you had payroll and a business to operate. Yep. So maybe just briefly, if you can weave that piece in, because I think it's important for people not to then think they have an excuse. Definitely not. So at age 33, when I divorced my husband, he's a good bloke, but he had a throwaway line where he said to me, during the proceedings, you're not going to make it on your own. So I took the entire divorce settlement and then cleared out all my bank accounts, personal bank account, business bank account, and gave it all to Opportunity International, set up a trust bank. And then I tell the story that I wanted to ring them the next day to say, can I have some of that back? Because it meant it probably took about two to three years where I had to live for a year in a frat house with five friends. And that sounds fun until my room was a basement room that barely fit a double bed in with mold on the ceiling. So whilst it was a party house, That's not where I expected to be at age 34, but it meant that I had to start where I had to go into debt for wages. I had to go into debt for cash flow, and I had to go. I moved into a tiny, tiny house in the Blue Mountains because that's all I could afford, and it really put me back financially. But it also made me realize, oh my gosh, if I'm now in my mid 30s making these decisions, but yet I know how to get out of this. I know how to build wealth. What do women who don't know how to build wealth, how do they get out of it? And I look at Lauren, who works with me today. She's in her late 30s. She's in a far better position than I ever was at that age because she didn't start from that minus position that I had. Yet, interestingly, we had a good friend where her husband unexpectedly left her about 12 months ago. And Lawsy and I both looked at our financial position and went, we're good if we don't split, but if we split, we need more. Yes, to maintain those choices and lifestyle. Yeah, so we both went back and went, A, we don't believe we're ever going to split, but I think it makes the relationship healthier and makes you feel more comfortable in it. I agree. Because you know that no matter what, you're both going to be okay. So we've both gone back and done that as well, and we're both in the process of building wealth. So that if something was to happen, we now have extraordinary choice. But you're right. It's not from decades and decades. I just think that's a really important piece. Yeah, I agree. Because people can otherwise listen to something that they're not connected to and think, well, that's lovely for you. Yeah. (laughs) 
I couldn't do that. So I just think that's important. Definitely. And it's a lovely piece then to flow into. If people are wanting to learn more, connect with you, work with you, all of those pieces that you have learned and built up and are now sharing, can you tell us about like what's coming up for you? Is there another round of the course? Where are things up to? Yes. Yeah, so I looked and I couldn't find anything out there because financial advice is expensive. We were having to charge about three grand because of best interest duty. So that's kind of the minimum that you can charge. And what I know is that if you don't have assets or if you're just wanting to get started or if you've come out of divorce or even if you're in a great position, you might go, ugh, I just don't feel comfortable spending that. So for me, it was teach someone to fish rather than fish for them. So I looked around and I couldn't see one there. So I created a course where you create your own financial strategy. So both mindset through to where are you now? Where do you want to go? And what will it take to get there? So your own financial plan. We're tweaking it at the moment and we're just putting a whole lot of calculators and everything on our site so that you can really answer the question, how much is enough, both from an income and an asset position. And then we teach you about investing, shares, property, business, as well as things like ethical investing and money in a relationship and kids and money and more. So it's this really holistic, it's not scary because you get it in bite-sized chunks and you get to ask questions all the way through. But it's kind of that financial education that you never got at school or that you didn't get from your parents and that you're having to play catch up with now. Yeah. We, I think it was two Christmases ago now, Mm. gave it to my stepdaughter for Christmas for that exact reason of learn this when you're young, not uh, (laughs) don't wait. And so what's the best way for people to get in touch with you then? Is it Instagram? Is it through your website? Yeah. So come play with me at Insta at More Money for Shoes and you can get a feel for me. We'll give you a link that your listeners can come to where they can have a look at, they can jump on the wait list for the next round. We've given you a free resource around 50 plus ways to find 10K and a couple of other things. Great. So that you can play. But yeah, the website, which is melissabrown.com.au. I'm a fancy brown with an E on my name (laughs) or Insta at More Money for Shoes. So we'll include the links there, but I think that regardless of whether it's for you, for your kids or wherever it is, there will be benefit in following Mel, listening to what she has to say and potentially jumping into the course. Mm. So thank you so much, Mel. Really appreciate it. Is there anything that I've missed or that you're keen to kind of share as we wrap up? I think it's just being aware that we carry messages, we carry myths around with us. And unless we extract them and have a look at them, we'll never know. You know, I talk a lot about the piggy bank where people don't realize why a pig. And it was actually a mistake back in the 16th century where a merchant sent info across to the factory. The pig actually described the clay. The factory owner created a whole lot of pig-shaped objects. Merchant was horrified, but oh, well, it's got to go to market anyway. And that's why we have a piggy bank from a mistake. And so many of us are carrying these myths around with us that we believe are truths, either with our own ability to handle money or how we think we should behave with money. And I think it's time to start pulling those out, identifying them and asking the question, what do I actually want? So true. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Mel. And hopefully people have found it helpful and can get in touch with you following listening to the episode. Thanks for having me.
thank you so much for listening to Both And with Bessie Graham. You know you were born to do something significant, so don't leave it to chance. Join me each week to pick up quick tips and ideas that will support you on your journey to live and lead a meaningful life. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode and leave us a review so that other people can find us and feel a little less lonely and a little more supported on their journey of leadership. If you haven't joined our Facebook group yet, you'll find the link in the episode notes. Please join us. Thank you so much for being a part of the community and for tuning into the show each week. See you next time. Cheers.